suggestive. Glad to see Gucci Granny made the made the cut. Mark. Don't you wonder, like, hi, Mark. What are the forces that made Gucci Granny? Oh, hi. Uh, I know the forces that made Gucci, Gucci Granny. Okay, wh what are they? Oh, what hi. are the ingredients of that Frankenstein's monster? Hello. Uh, well, you watched the video, right? Yep. The guy, you know, the guy that's behind her. No. With the beard deal. Is he the, the conservative rapper? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's his whole shtick. Yeah. F F Fig Figurado blow or something like that. And so this is just another, like, she, she's a stunt, obviously, right? Yeah. Um, but do you think she is just in on the stunt? Or do you think that she is being exploited for her real beliefs? In Trump and um, Forgiato blow. His name's Kurt Jantz. Kurt Jantz turned into Forgiato blow. Um, I'm sure she's a Trump lady. Yeah, I don't. What, what what's her awareness? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's. I don't think she's a big rap fan. Yeah. Like I, I want to be like really quick. What's Gucci. What's Gucci mean? Right. She'll be like, mm. yeah. All right. So here's our opening question for this week before we jump into the curse and true detective. Okie dokie. Um, you shared with me a answer the question channel youtube channel called horses yeah and uh yep. i've been watching horses Yippee! showing horses to indy mm -hmm. and we've been watching some of the the videos and talking about them but he asked a a really good question when he was talking about um the effects of like technology on our attention spans mm -hmm. and how they are objectively and, and scientifically getting shorter. Yeah. He was like, at what point do, at what point are you, can what a you, stupid question that is. <laughs> I can't get it out. At what point uh, will Amber. we know when technology has stopped improving things or at what point we'll stop improving things yeah, well at what point will we realize when technology is actually having a negative effect what's that what's that tipping point you know so technology this was indy's question no 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 this was posed in the horses oh okay um but but we were talking about it because you and i have talked a little bit about it Mm -hmm. Um, and if we wanted to tie it in, uh, to our larger discussion on like the, the, the curse and the things around it, it is, you know, the curse stands as a rejection against 
modern television shows. Do you agree with that statement? Uh, yeah, to a degree. And some people, someone on the subreddit pointed out, which I thought was very astute, is that maybe it's Nathan Fielder's penance for all of his previous shows. Yeah. Where he's exploited people. Well, it's, it's made, we've talked a little bit about it and it's really made me think a lot about that. And again, it makes me think and question at what point are we able to understand the impacts of the technology that's being created and the effects on us? And even if you just think about television and um, you and I have talked about Kurt Vile, who's an artist that I think both of us really enjoy. Um, yep. I don't listen to every Kurt Vile interview. Mm-hmm. I don't go out seeking those a lot, but in the few interviews that I've heard with him, he mentions that he does not have a TV at least once in every one of the interviews. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very big point. I feel like for him that television is a detraction to his creativity. Yeah. Or maybe his curiosity. Mm-hmm. And and that's how he views television, which is obviously the complete opposite of the way that I look at television, but I can still look at television as a whole and say, yeah, television probably hasn't increased human curiosity yeah as much as it could i think if you want to consume television is what you do if you want to create television is not going to help you create i feel like yeah but but again there's nothing inherent in the idea of television that would be detrimental to creation Mm. or creativity yeah, maybe. It's it's just the same with, like, I, I don't know if it was a video that I was watching or anything, but I was talking to Indy, and last year I read and listened to over 100 books. Mm-hmm. I don't know that throughout history many people would have access to that much literature in one single year as I was able to just shove into my head. Yeah. You know? Now, did me reading all of that have some, like, uh, benefit on me that can be, like, tracked and marked scientifically? Did it make me more knowledgeable or more curious or whatever else? Like, I don't know. Um, But technically, it probably should. Access to more information should make you more curious and informed. But again, in modern society, we don't see that correlation as direct as you would think it would be. Mm -hmm. So television, all television does is it opens us up to more information and to more people. I am now able to engage with Nathan Fielder as somebody that I would never ever be able to engage with in my daily life. I would never encounter. Oh, 
Are you engaging with Nathan Fielder though? I mean, but but that that's the question, right? I could be. I don't know if I am because I don't know Nathan Fielder. But in watching his content, I feel like I am engaging with a person. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm I'm engaging with a worldview with a perspective. And in watching the show, it gives me access to his interviews. You sent me the after um, the, the Q&A mm-hmm. of a premiere. There have been a lot of videos where he's talking. So it's like, even if I'm not interacting with him in the show, I'm now able to interact with him outside the show. The show is still giving me access to this person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's again, all it's it, yeah, it, it, it's it's all in how you utilize it, and it's like I can stand back and say, again, HGTV, and this is this is one of the questions about the show, is how much do the creators of the curse like the content on? HGTV and, and enjoy the content that they are representing mm-hmm. and how much of the show is a like absolute condemnation of that type of content. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, if you listen to some of this interviews that Benny Safty did, he always makes it a point to mm-hmm. say, I can't remember why, but I was at in a time for whatever reason, I was watching a lot of H, a lot of HGTV shows, and that's where some a lot of this inspiration came from. And he has some that he likes, and he has some that are he thinks are terrible. Now, the cynical side of me tends to believe that he doesn't actually like any of them, and he's just saying that to be political. He, hearing him talk about the Rachel Ray segment made me feel like this is not the way you'd be talking about this segment if there were not recorders right cameras around yeah especially compared to that reddit comment of the person who was in the audience well and even benny safty kept saying oh it was great she did not understand what was going on right oh she was fantastic yeah and then he in his story he's also like so when she was done, she was like, okay, I'm done. And we had to be like, well, can you give us more? And she's like, why? Yeah. So it's like, even in you praising <clears throat> her, you, you're telling us that you had to trick her. Yeah. It's so it doesn't sound like there's much. And your observation of the guy from the Soprano seems pretty spot on. Yeah. That he probably barely knew where he was mm-hmm. and what was, what he was filming. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I know I've talked to you about it for specifically is like, like I think to me it seems it doesn't seem like it there. It's a coincidence that the majority of creative people who are actually making things are not consumers are not consumers. Mm -hmm. There aren't a lot of authors who also read a lot of books. There aren't a lot of filmmakers who watch a lot of movies. Then there's Tarantino and Scorsese. 
I mean, maybe is Tarantino. I mean, Tarantino, I think, is probably the exception to the rule. Well, I mean, Scorsese, I would almost put up as maybe more Mm -hmm. active than than Tarantino because he, when he's not filming anything, it's just talking about movie, just period movies Mm -hmm. and movies I've never heard of before. And he's the one who's like, watch this, watch this, watch this. You know, Mm -hmm. he seems to just always be watching movies. Or engaging with movies in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, Peter Bogdanovich, another example of a guy who's like steeped in film and making film. Mm-hmm. Or made. Is he dead? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he is. That's the one thing that I love about podcasts is when you can declare someone who's alive dead. <laughs> Especially when they're more successful. Oh, no, he is dead. Yes, yeah. He died in 2022. He died two years ago. Yeah. Almost exactly. Yeah. I I showed Indie Paper Moon. About the (sighs) story. Great. Uh And Larry McMurtry, author of Lonesome Dove, amazing book. One of the best I've ever read in my life. Wrote The Last Picture Show and worked with Peter Bogdanovich. They wanted to make Lonesome Dove as a film. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. Exactly. Well, and now he's dead. Well, you know what's funny? Now they're both dead. They wrote it as a vehicle for Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne. And they were viewing it as like a final Western. You mm-hmm. know, about these old guys sending them off on in a swan song, right? An epic adventure. And both of them, apparently... Uh, said, uh, we're not old yet. And they, <laughs> they didn't want to be portrayed as old people uh-huh. on film. So they what? rejected it. Is J- is James Stewart a Western guy? Surprisingly, yes. I didn't realize that either. He reminds me of like a, like a New Yorky guy. You know New Yorky. It's like an old, just not Western, he's, I guess. He's like a, like a mid- Midwest yeah. man. That's why. I can't, yeah, I can't do Jimmy Stewart, but um, this has got me on a, I'm, I'm going to do a Western film journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, the end. <laughs> okay. Okie dokie. Okie dokie. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where, where were we? You're, you're, you're talking about some, some point. Uh, no, I don't have any points. Yeah, well, we were talking about creatives, right? Um, consuming or creating mm-hmm. and how consumption of media can seem to be a hindrance to creation of it. Mm-hmm. Which, I, again, I, I, my gut says yes. And growing up, I'd want to agree with now. I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I'm not a creative Um and so I think it's I think it's easy to use consumption as a cop out mm-hmm. more than anything else. I think if you want to create, you will create. Um, if you want to create bad enough, and TV isn't going to stand in your way or whatever else. Sure. Um, but I I feel like getting back to like the curse, and the one thing is like the fallout and the impact of the curse. Mm-hmm. So you've been watching a lot of. Q and A's and reading information about it. Right. So have I, 
We haven't been chatting a lot about it, but I have a lot of thoughts now about the show. Yeah, go for it. I, I mean, I've I feel like I've said my piece. Oh, really? I feel like everything I've read and watched after the finale has more or less confirmed confirmed what I thought beforehand. The only the only thing I've really come to ex- kind of accept is that, and I think this also came from maybe the uh, finale Q and A, which they didn't post for some reason. Um, somebody put the audio of it on Reddit, right? But like the YouTube channel didn't post it. Mm. Uh, but uh, Benny really didn't want to answer any sort of interpretive questions. Uh, and you know that coupled with you can go onto the Curse subreddit and there's 50 different posts, mm-hmm. and they're they all make very logical connections to who was cursed, who put the curse, why, you know, da, 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 da. And so I think at the end of the day, it's, it's just, you know, it's just one of those things that they very purposefully put in a bunch of different little things that you can use to point to whatever theory resonates the most with you. And that's kind of what it is. I don't think there's one definitive answer to really any of it. Um, so that's that's kind of where I'm at with it. I have a new take on that. Here's here's my take in in watching all the post show stuff and Q and A stuff that you sent me and, and all the stuff that I found on my own. It made me finally able to articulate something that I've thought a lot about when it comes to interpreting art mm-hmm. or shows, especially. It's it's never ever one person's vision. So the curse could, we, we can easily identify like Nathan Fielder, but he was not the sole mind that came up with the curse. Mm -hmm. So you could not interview Nathan Fielder and get an answer on what the curse means because he's going to tell you from his perspective. Mm -hmm. But Benny Safdie has a completely different approach. So does um, so does Emma Stone. Mm-hmm. One thing that I thought was interesting in a Q&A was when um, Nathan Fielder was answering a question and then Emma Stone was like jumping in with her own interpretation and they were kind of saying the same thing, but the way that Emma Stone said it was different than how Nathan Fielder was articulating, mm-hmm. right? Because you... Again, she is performing it and doing it with this vision, and that vision does not have to and can't be in full alignment with Nathan Fielder, you know? Mm -hmm. So it made me embrace the collaborative nature of anything that you watch to break it apart and separate it from one single person's take or identity And another moment that articulated that for me was hearing Benny Safdie, who is clearly like a film geek Mm -hmm. and talk about consuming and creating. I think Benny Safdie is a huge consumer of cinema, right? Um, Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he definitely was growing up. Well, like the only thing I can go off of is his trip to the criterion closet Uh where, yeah, he's, just grabbing stuff and talking about it like a, like a Tarantino excitement and historian. Right. Um, 
but he also is super interested in the tech tech, right? Mm-hmm. And the approach. So one thing that I was watching was him talking about how they filmed the curse to look like it shouldn't like it's not right. Like it sh- it shouldn't be mm-hmm. on your TV. You shouldn't be watching it. Mm-hmm. And his interpretation of why you include all these kind of side people walking through. He was talking about um, saturation and all right. this. Like the actual fidelity of the picture is lower than well, yeah. what is standard for right now. He's like, they, they shot in 4K, but then they purposefully muddied right. the image, basically, is what it comes down to. So when you're watching it, it just doesn't look good. But he also is like, but it looks amazing because mm-hmm. of that, right? Because that's his approach. But you very well could have somebody watch a show and be like, why does it look so shitty? Mm-hmm. You know, and it, that's their that's their big takeaway. Right. But for Benny Safdie, he, he's doing all this stuff. It's really exciting him about, about the show. And that does not need to be reflected by anybody else making the show. So Benny Safdie could have this completely other interest and motivation that is not shared by Nathan Fielder or wherever else. They could be complimenting each other. Sometimes I think with creatives, you could be working a counter um, production of, of each other, like mm-hmm. working against each other. And sometimes that creates great art, you know? So for me in, in the curse, I don't think that you, it helped articulate that you'll never find one answer. And it doesn't matter right. if you do get Nathan Fielder's explanation. Because it won't be the, it'll be his interpretation. Mm-hmm. I think the curse does a great job in the way that it's made and filmed and in the way that the people made it. I think that you can see so many different fingerprints on it um, that it becomes something that's not easy to pin down or identify as a Nathan Fielder project, you mm-hmm. know, or a Benny Safty project, or just a satire of HGTV programming you know or whatever else it becomes this bigger you know kind of collage of ideas and motivations um and and i think they did a good job of balancing it so you get to the end and you're not frustrated um and where there's still some cohesion where sometimes i can feel like i i find myself more moved by david lynch stuff than engaged by it but there are some times where i get to the end of a david lynch thing and i'm like i don't even know how to access this like mm-hmm. the curse feels accessible i think that 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 says a lot um for it yeah I, I, accessible to you maybe i don't think it's accessible to like the general population but i think that it's accessible even if you give it a little a little extra thought. I think there's enough there for you to connect with in a way that again, like David Lynch stuff. Sometimes the images don't even match up mm-hmm. to anything that's happening. Things just seem to be happening in your, in this dream state with this. There's even like he hits the, the sunlight and then Whitney has a contraction. Mm-hmm. So like, He's the baby, you know, 
even something like that, there, there's at least a one-to-one sure. connection or image or right at the end of the previous episode, he's like, if you don't want me here, I'm gone. You just, you don't have to say it. I'll sense it and I'll be gone. Mm-hmm. And then he's gone the next episode. You know? mm-hmm. So there's, there's so many more clear signposts, I feel like. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, did you watch all of the Q and A's or only a couple of them? No, I watched all the, and I even went out and and looked at a few. There was one, did you see the one where they kept asking Benny about the penis? (laughs) And he got so fed up that he just refused to answer the last one. He's like, he's just like started to mumble a couple words and then he's just like, I'm just not, I'm not answering that. Yeah. (laughs) It's so strange how people like, because you could tell the very first time it it gets asked, he's uncomfortable with the question and he's uncomfortable answering it. He answers it though. And then people just keep on asking him about it. Yeah. Also, the other thing, the other issue I had with the Q and A's is the questions are also lame. Oh, the, the, and everybody who's in the industry, they all say Q and A's suck and are bad. And it's so true. Yeah. Um, and I think because people are, we're so dumb. Sure. Um, that I'm like, yeah, give me a prepared Q and a back and forth. Don't open it up. And it's funny. Like I remember when, um, commentaries mm-hmm. started getting released on like criterions, I'd listen to them. And some of the anecdotes that would always come through were like Q and a anecdotes. Um, from a lot of directors. Um, and you realize like those are some of the weirder experiences that they have other than making the film. Mm-hmm. It's like, where, where am I going to talk about? I'm going to talk about this shot, but then you know what? Uh, in a Q and a, somebody asked me this. So a lot of Q and a stuff came up. I remember Wes Anderson for Rushmore, um, was like, yeah, somebody got really upset at a Q and a because Max Fisher steps on a grave right here. Mm-hmm. And then you see Max Fisher step on a grave and walk on. And he was like, they were furious. And I'm like, how would you know? Why would you care? How? How would you care about mm-hmm. that? But sure enough, somebody watched it and then waited in the Q&A line to go up right. there and be like, so was that a real grave? You you, you stepped on a grave, huh? <laughs> and be like, who are you? Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, that's what you get in Q&As. Nobody wants it. Right. Um, so yeah, no, the, the Q and A's are tough, but I did watch it more because I wanted to hear Benny Safty and Nathan Fielder talk about the project. Sure. And well, Benny one- Safty loves to talk, loves to talk. Exactly. And if you're interested, I was interested in it, so I didn't have any issues with it, but he can talk. Yeah. He can answer your question <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's, he's earnest. Yeah. You know? And so there's there's an excitement in what he does that is in contrast to Nathan Fielder and then there's a a stripped down obviously i think things get more complex but he's like yeah this came out of Nathan Fielder and I wanting to be friends mm-hmm. me liking his stuff him liking our stuff and our friendship kind of hit off and then we we made the show and it's like i believe that at the same time i don't think i i'm reading too much into the situation to read a strong dislike of the content that you guys 
are satirizing here. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as you want to say, like, oh, Rachel Ray is great, and oh, HGTV really got me through a time of depression. I just want to be like, bullshit, not true. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you wouldn't want to talk about it because it's not going to help you at all mm-hmm. to start shitting on that culture. Um, but I think it's there in the show mm. pretty, pretty clear. Um, and then secondly, to kind of be honest about the like penance, like you said, like is Nathan Fielder in any way? I don't think that he would say it like that, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, of course, of course that that has to be in there, mm-hmm. you know, of course the, the way that he treats real people, like anytime you put, a non-actor on camera, it's exploitative mm-hmm. because they, they're not trained. They don't know what to do. You know, it's shocking to be, I have to do little things for work and it's the most nerve wracking thing I have to do is stand in front of a camera and just read a script. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to, to have anyone who's schooled in film or TV to point a camera at me and then they're interacting with me. That's not fair. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and, and, but, but again, you're, you're going to have to like read into that or um, you're not going to get an answer about that. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, d- directly from him. I think it's all there, you yeah. know? So, Again, I think that that's that to me is the the takeaway on the curse. I will say this. I'll give you this. I was going to try and use that just to push back against the yep. one thing that you yep 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 that you're gloating Okey over. Okey mm-hmm. Um, which is the fact that Emma Stone primarily mm-hmm. was saying that she felt like Whitney was good in her intentions in all that she did. Mm-hmm. Okie dokie. Yep. But misunderstanding. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, right? Well, also, also, someone asked them directly if they thought their characters were bad people. Right. To which they didn't say yes, and they didn't say, but they didn't, also didn't say no. They just kind of, you know, tried to, sort of poke and prod at the idea of like what, who, what is a bad person? What makes a person a bad person? All my preamble was my defense of my position. <laughs> it's subjective. Was your defense of being You're wrong, 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 subjective. And it is, uh, talk to them. And they can't, they can't tell the truth from there to say that they're bad people is again, I think, can be perceived as an attack on any influencer. So you think they lifestyle that their characters are, this is, this is my other issue with it too, is if they were, if all of the characters in the show were 100% bad, irredeemable people, it wouldn't be interesting to watch. That's not a fun thing to watch. Like there has to be something in the character that the audience can relate to, to a, to a degree. There were things that Whitney and Asher did that mm-hmm. we could relate to. Mm-hmm. Having the awkward conversations where you feel like a fraud. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. I still stand by them being awful people. Yeah, I think ultimately they're they're bad people. Yeah, and um and, and I think it's a more nuanced conversation like what makes a bad person if you think about like neoliberals, right? Mm-hmm. That there there are people who because they care very strongly about something will end up missing a big piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Right. But they're missing it because they're very fixated and focused on something that matters very much to them. You know, Mm -hmm. um, it's like, yeah, like I can understand them. I was, I was that, at, at one point I was mm-hmm. a person who like cared deeply about trying to understand the world in the way I was grown up or raised to, to see it. And it made me, um, have some very bad ideas politically mm-hmm. that I still feel bad about today. Um, but I don't think that I was a bad person at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was an idiot. I was stupid. You know, um, so yeah, what makes a bad person? What's ignorance? What's, I think that's a, that's a deeper, more nuanced conversation about their characters that is interesting, but you blew it. Good show. Wrong. Um, okay. Do you want to talk about true detective? Yeah. Um, True Detective season four, Night Country. Can we start with the list of executive producers? Matthew McConaughey, Woody Woody Harrelson, Nick Pizzolatto. Jodie Foster. Is she an executive producer? Jodie Foster. I just found it funny. The, The first three were there and I was like, they have no idea. Barry Jenkins. Oh, Barry Jenkins. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. That was the other guy that I saw. Um, yeah. Uh, do you want to just give general impressions? Sure. Any expectations going into it? My expectations were raised hearing people talk about it um, on the few sites and social media you know, accounts them, them on. Um, so going into it, I didn't have a lot of expectation leading up to it. I started getting excited Mm -hmm. and then, um, and I didn't really watch like the trailers and stuff like that. I tried to just, I knew I was going to watch the show. Mm -hmm. Let's go. What about you? Did you have any sort of affinity towards the idea of like true detective? Like going into it, do you expect to see certain things because it's called true detective? The biggest, so that's probably the most I have to say about this episode. There's, I don't have a lot to say. About this yeah. Episode. We've only, there's only been one episode and there's not a whole lot in that one episode. Right. If we didn't, if I, I didn't want to talk about the curse, then I'd be like, let's record next week when there's mm-hmm. two episodes. Um, but one of my biggest takeaways was what does true detective mean? Right. What does it mean to me? What does it mean for the show? And to me, I think even going into this uh, season, 
my thought was, why did this have to be true detective? Other right. than just to try and make it successful. Right. And um, Isa Lopez, is that mm-hmm. how you use her name? Isa? She's on the record as saying, like, I didn't, this wasn't written as a true detective thing. It was written at its as its own thing, and then she took it to HBO, I guess, and then HBO was like, make this true detective e put some like true detective stuff in this yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah I, I agree uh there's not um i mean yeah i think i guess when you say true detective the what i associate it most to is nick pizzolato and so that's kind of what i would ex i would expect to watch something that he has created wholly and that's what true detective is. I don't associate it to like, oh, you have to have two detectives and it has to be, I mean, I guess existential stuff is like kind of baked in as a, as a Pizzolatto thing, but. Yeah. See, I stopped associating with Pizzolatto. Um, like true detective does not mean Nick Pizzolatto to me because uh-huh. after season one, uh, I ended up really not liking him as a, Oh yeah, I agree. I agree, but he still wrote all of it. Exactly. And I think that the, I, I don't know where you settled on it. I settled on the fact that, Oh hell yeah. He plagiarized, um, a lot of season one because when he had to crank out season two, Mm -hmm. you just get like, that was just entertaining to watch stuff happen. But as a written script a lot of it did not connect it was a train wreck i felt like yeah scene to scene you're like why is he screaming at that fat kid now (laughs) right everything he's done since season one is like poorly written like poorly conceived he did that jake gyllenhaal is it an er movie or or with someone with like a dispatcher or something I watched it on an airplane. It was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, season two was bad. And, season three the, kind of fell apart. And that um, Jake Gyllenhaal thing was a remake of something else. So like, was it? He had talk about plagiarism. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I think that I look at Nick Pizzolatto and I'm like, I feel like this is one of those guys that if you met in like a writing class, mm-hmm. you just be like, this guy's like a smarmy creep. And he's going to yeah. do anything he can to get it to, to get ahead, you know? Yeah. And so he, he had a take and I think he used some templates. He had a lot of time to work and, you know, rework old things that when true detective came around, it felt new, right? Like now yes. we're in a glut. It, of, was, it had a very unique dynamic. Yes. And, and I will say that's what stood out about season one. Right is the specific dynamic of Rust Cole and the specific dynamic of Matthew McConaughey in the role of Rust Cole. To me, that's what season one kind of is. And everything else seems like you had an awesome director who then got Me Too'd and is now done. Yeah, I saw that. Um, But you have Carrie Fukunaga, who also clashed with Nick Pizzolatto right. and end up leaving. But you have his visuals. You have a fresh seeming show. You have Matthew McConaughey doing something new and different. 
You have a great character in Rust Cole. And then everything else around even season one is kind of a mess too. Mm -hmm. We talked about the the set decorations where they way overdid it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the ending, which I think I like thematically, but definitely didn't enhance Mm -hmm. the show at all. It just kind of, it resolved it, but didn't do anything with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what's kind of interesting if you comparing the first season and this new one, at least we've what we've gotten so far is the one of the things that made season one different is the um I guess cosmic horror elements of it. Carcosa, the King in Yellow, all that stuff. The references. The references, which ultimately ended up being Nothing, just that, it just that exactly, just a reference. Like there's no supernatural element to the show at all. There's no, like nothing. Um, and we can talk about whether or not there will be in season four, whether you think there will be, but uh, that's kind of, um, it's, I just don't know how much of an, element it it is when it's just a reference like you said it's almost it's i think some of it has been proven to just be plagiarized you know what i mean but like if you're talking about a thomas Ligotti story wild shit happens in those stories it's not just a reference to something else you know what i mean um and it seems like they're leaning into that a little bit more with season four which has turned some people off. Um, but yeah, so when it comes to what I was expecting, I guess, yeah, I guess I was trying not to really, ex- I didn't expect anything because Nick Pizzolatto is not a part of it. So I kind of, and as soon as it started it, yeah, like you said, it to me, it kind of felt like, I don't know why this is called, this should just be called night country or whatever. Mm-hmm. This should not be called true detective. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything to me. I don't really care. You know what I mean? I have no allegiance to the brand, to the true detective brand that like this bothers me by it, but it's just as a strange, it's not even strange. I completely understand why they did it. Uh, it's just an arbitrary dumb thing that they did. Yeah. Uh, all right. So episode one, no title. Mm. They're just called part part one. There's only six episodes. Did you know that? I did not. Um, and let me say this. The person who writes the plot summary on Wikipedia for True Detective, we could have used you over on the curse. <laughs> okay? This guy is thorough. I, I also really quick, um, you, you mentioned like the supernatural thing. So I started watching uh isa lopez's film right tigers are not afraid um great i i could not complete it just because of life stuff uh-huh. um and i i fully intend to but it's interesting how she uses supernatural elements mm-hmm. in the film so far um and then comparing it to night country mm-hmm. um it's part of her visual language already. So I think that she's more connected to supernatural imagery mm-hmm. than 
maybe Nick Pizzolatto was. So again, not saying that that means that it will be supernatural. Um, but so far there's just some really nice flourishes that she does mm-hmm. in um, Tigers Are Not Afraid that, that I think work great. Um, okay. On December on December 17 in Alaska, a man is hunting caribou during the last day of solstice. As the sun sets, the entire herd of caribou suddenly become erratic and leaps off a cliff. Any thoughts on the caribou? So, this is this is what I want to say. Listen. <laughs> bottom line, uh-huh. PS3 <laughs> looking they didn't look great. Graphics, right? <laughs> Which yeah. also I get it's hard to do animals. Yeah. Period. And it's hard. Oh, the polar bear looks good, I thought. The polar bear looked decent. Yeah. Um, but I largely when I think about what we've experienced in our lifetime, mm-hmm. like we we come from the era of Mac and me, you mm-hmm. know, and what's what's a bad uh I mean I remember the shadow um with alec baldwin yes mm-hmm. and like the visual the shadow nose yeah <laughs> i remember the visual shakes of the visual effects of shadow or um what's the it just popped in my head and then popped out um spawn uh-huh like i remember watching spawn in theaters now that that shit looks like ps1 yeah you know that was bad so i I'm very forgiving of CGI. Yeah. Um, especially if the story is good. So right. Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer, that looks PS3 too. Mm-hmm. I love the movie. I don't care that anytime you look at the train going through snow, it just looks <laughs> ridiculous. like a Final bad. Fantasy cutscene. Exactly. It looks awful. I can forgive that stuff. Mm-hmm. This was one of the times where I'm like, visually, could you found another way to film it? Mm-hmm. Like, why not just scare some caribou off a cliff in real life? <laughs> just sacrifice a dozen caribou. Who cares? You know, keep the shot. <laughs> you got to get the shot. Keep the shot wide. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Do I need to see the close up of the caribou and it's sniffing? Like, I guess it's responding to something, and that's what yeah. they're trying to signal. I mean, I I think it doesn't look bad. I think. What it is, I think it probably looks very good, but I think what it is is the uncanny valley. And as you can, there it just looks off. I think objectively you could say it looks good, and it's like good CGI. But because there's something slightly off about it, you can never not see it, not see how fake it looks. You know what I mean? Um, if, if you're hunting in a herd... Goes off like that. Are you just taking a shot in the herd trying to <laughs> just trying before? to get one still? Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably. Yeah. I had that thought I was like, take your shot, dude. They're yeah. all running for the cliff. Like, <laughs> why not? If you need the meat. Yeah. Uh at the Salal Arctic Research Station, a team of scientists go on with their daily routines. Suddenly, one of the scientists, Clark, has a seizure and declares she is awake before the lights turn off. I also want to say I love this setting. The thing. Snow settings. Yes. Research station in the snow. You can't go wrong. Oh, my God. It's great. uh, Yeah. 
Three days later, a delivery man arrives at the station with food, but no one is there. As he inspects the area, he discovers a severed tongue. So here's a question I have. By the end of the episode, we see that all of these researchers are in the middle of the snow. Dyatlov passed. Yeah, frozen in horror, right? So you're under the... We're under the idea that something has happened. They all went crazy. And they're all dead, essentially, right? But this guy, delivery guy, shows up three days later. And someone runs by in the background. Who the hell is that? I thought they were all dead. Well, it, it's like so a There's shadow. one still alive? It's like a shower or a thing. It's the thing that got them. It's a person or a thing or the killer. This guy, Clark, the guy that has the seizure, is wearing the parka. Did you notice that? At the end, when Jodie Foster goes back because she's looking for the parka, because the first lady that got died was wearing a parka, and then she saw a picture of a scientist wearing the parka, and then it had the smiley face patch over the rip. That was the guy that had the seizure. Interesting. Uh, something else about that scene. Um, do we want to... Hmm. Well, I guess we'll come back to it. But something else about that scene, they find the one of the guys is doing like a TikTok or something mm-hmm. uh, for his food, whatever. Um. And he's recording himself. And then when they show up, his... uh, Sandwich? When they show up, his phone is dead. So I'm assuming at some point that phone's going to get charged and they're going to have some crazy TikToks to look at. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, After handling an assault case at a factory, Alaska State Trooper Evangeline Navarro... Callie Reese is recalled to the police station in the town of Ennis near the research station. What did you think of Callie Reese? So yeah, really quick, I guess on just the actors and everything watching Jodie Foster in this made me realize how much I miss Jodie Foster in this mode. Mm -hmm. I love silence of the lambs. Mm -hmm. And I think that she just does a really great job of playing law enforcement Mm -hmm. i don't know if it's like if she feels comfortable or if it's just her whole look or whatever but watching her in this role i think she's great um i like all the actors Mm -hmm. um i like what they've set up trying to think if there's anybody that stood out to me as someone who not really digging maybe Jodie Foster's daughter a little bit. Just want to know mm-hmm. where they're going with with her. But I liked everybody. What would you think? Uh, Callie Reese is fine. I don't oh, think she's fine. great. I don't think she's unwatchable. Um, But just fine. Again, I feel like I, I need to see more of the story. Yeah, maybe. I mean, she's in it a lot. She she's in it a lot, and but I feel like I have a sense of her, 
So that's good. Yeah. I, I just, yeah, I want, I want to see more. The department is run by NS Police Chief Liz Danvers, Jody Foster, with whom Navarro formerly worked as a detective. Danvers is present at the research station where her colleague Peter Pryor explains the purposes of the station, which includes climate study and microbiology. The eight scientists disappeared, leaving just the words, we are all dead, written on a dry erase board. Finding that the tongue belongs to a native woman, she instructs Detective Hank Pryor, Peter's father, to check on local corpses. Um, so the scientists are there to study climate change. Um, there's already a lot of theories on the subreddit as to what they're studying, what they're finding, what could be causing all of this. Uh, but the, the gist of it is... Uh, they've found something climate related, which is why somebody, because they, everyone doesn't go crazy. And then somebody takes the time while they're crazy to write, we are all dead on the board. Right. Mm -hmm. So someone has written that because of the, whatever research they're doing and the results they found. And maybe someone was just goofing around or whatever, but that's why they wrote it. Um, and someone made the connection to, and I feel like we talked about this before, prions. Have you heard of those? Tell me again, because the name sounds familiar, but I can't place it. A prion is a misfolded protein that can induce misfolding of normal variants of the same protein and trigger cellular death. Prions cause prion disease known as transmissible spongiform something that are transmissible fatal neurodegenerative diseases in humans and animals. The proteins may misfold sporadically due to genetic mutations, blah, 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 blah. Um, chronic wasting disease, sometimes called zombie deer disease, a, tr is a transmission, same thing, affecting deer, blah, blah, blah. But the basic idea is, I think the basic idea is, um, one of these ancient diseases or microorganisms or whatever that live in all of these glaciers or whatever is becoming more prevalent because shit is melting. Mm -hmm. Right? That's what the scientists are finding. Yeah. And that's why they all went crazy mm -hmm. is the theory at least. Yeah, I think that works. I, I told you about when I found out um, the zombie disease that can hit deer the sickness they're, they're yeah that's what the other thing they were that was the yeah second wikipedia page that i didn't read horrifying yeah it's 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 like straight out of horror movie stuff and um as soon as i read it i wish i hadn't learned about it yeah. Most human prion diseases like CJD, Kuru, or fatal insomnia could cause tremor, involuntary muscle movement, and hallucinations. And prion diseases are known to be fatal with no effective treatment. You might be on to something. Of course, at this point, it's pure speculation, though I really hope they don't go to the we dug up an ancient microorganism that makes everyone crazy 
I mean, that's road. that's exactly what it is. I mean, that's it, what it seems like. Yeah. It, and this is the thing that I struggle with. Ultimately, my dream version of this mm-hmm. is going to be a Cthulhu creature. At the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm fine with that. I think, like you said, and like with season one, it seems so hard or like close to impossible to do something like that. But then I think about dredge, right? Dredge did it perfectly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, like the monsters in dredge looked terrible. Now, obviously it's a video game and it, it would, I guess would be a lot harder to do that. IRL, you know, especially if we're working with these caribou graphics, but (laughs) you know, I, I think that's what gets me about it is we've gotten to a point where I think you can tell a story um, like that mm-hmm. and, and pull it off visually. And I think the more that I've been reading, I'm interested in cosmic horror. I just read a book I told you about um, the brass halo. Yeah. Which is like a fully Lovecraftian um, detective story. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, I think eventually someone is going to get the backing to do a full story like that. I don't think this is. No, yeah. This is this is going to be a straightforward. It's going to have an explanation. It's uh-huh. going to be pre- prions, yeah. which is a terrifying thing that I didn't know about. But before, um, I think I learned about it for watching Last of Us. That's right. Um, you know, I didn't know about it before then, and it's horrifying. So. Mm-hmm. Fine, I'm I'm on board, but I am still holding out hope. And maybe the the true detective label, as HBO understands it, is not about supernatural. Yeah. Well, I mean, she does seem more willing to at least lean into hallucinations stuff. Which which, which, there wasn't any of that in season one, right? right? Which tracks with her movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What did you make of all of the little Easter eggs when they're looking through the research station. There's a thing DVD somewhere that someone's reading blood Meridian. Mm -hmm. Some they pick up and look at a Wilco t-shirt for some reason. I was going to text you and Julie and be like, Julia's favorite show now, right? It's like hipster, true detective. There's a Jim James song at the end. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, it feels a little, I mean, whatever, it's fine. It's cool. Uh, did you think there was any significance to the Ferris Bueller scene she chose to use? I kept. And that it was playing over and over again. The only thing is then Jodie Foster freaks out and she's like, I hate the Beatles. Right. I think we're going to find out that there's an accident or something somehow the Beatles are yes. There's like an emotional connection there or whatever. hundred percent. The only thing I could really make of it is a very straightforward. They're singing a song called twist and shout. And And these people are going to be tortured (laughs) and twisting and shouting. Get on Reddit. And even so, cause I watched it a second time. I watched it again today to take some more notes down and they make it a point to 
Um, oh, because they it, show people right. They show the people in the movie dancing okay. Ferris Bueller, and the one of the construction workers is almost doing like move for move what the guy ends up doing at the end of the show. Yeah. Uh, Navarro speaks. No, Danvers returns to the police station where Navarro wants to be involved in the case, despite being demoted from her position, claiming that the woman must be an indigenous. Yeah. Indigenous. That's not what this word is, but that's what it means. Much like activist and cow talk who was brutally murdered six years prior, an unsolved case with which Navarro remains obsessed. One thing or another thing uh, I I think we've touched on a little bit is that this episode, one of the reasons I guess it seems kind of so hard to make any sort of judgments on it is because it just kind of throws you into the middle of everything. And there's a lot of different dynamics going on between all these characters and it doesn't, has not explained any of that yet. So you kind of don't fully know what the picture is. You know, that there's some sort of past trauma between Danvers and her kid and her husband slash the kid's dad is dead. I'm assuming maybe from some sort of drunk driving accident, but you don't really know. It seems like Danvers maybe had a little kid that's dead Right, because the little kid grabs her shoulder or whatever when mm-hmm. she's holding. Mm-hmm. Um, Callie uh, Navarro has a bunch of different relationships that we don't really get the full picture on, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But I f- did feel a little bit like I'm watching the tenth episode of Succession first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got a little bit of that feeling while I was watching it. Yeah. Um. Also, I was listening to an interview with um, Issa Lopez, mm-hmm. and she said that Jody, when she brought the thing to Jodie Foster, she didn't like the character, and Jodie Foster said she wanted her to make her mean and racist. <laughs> I'm trying. Was she racist? She yeah, does. Little- she does a spirit animal thing. When Navarro walks into her office and she says something like, is that what your spirit animal is telling you? Right. Like, you know, pretty mild racism, but yeah, it's there, I guess. She's definitely mean or supposed to be at least. I never really got a full on like this person is unlikable or like unliked by everyone around her type of mean, but it kind of felt like she's been hurt by life and she's a little... She seems a little grumpy, yeah. Yeah. Danvers is forced to leave when her teenage stepdaughter, Leah, gets in trouble for trying to make a sex tape with her friend. How old is Leah supposed to be? Exactly, because they mentioned that the girl's 15. 15. Leah corrects her to say 16. 16. I guess they're both in school, so maybe they're both supposed to be underage, but she looks old. Yeah. Older than 16. Well, as an actress, you... Or actor, you, you anticipate that, yeah, she'd be older than that. Yeah. But that was a little weird where I was like, yeah, I wish they would have just flashed her license up. <laughs> oh, she's 16 too. Okay. Right. Not just. And, I, and, the, and the way that she's casually like, yeah, mom, you know, right. you're like, <laughs> she's not 18. Being yeah. like, 
As she scolds her while as she scolds her while driving, they witness a car crash. She arrests the drunk driver, Stacey Chalmers, who is desperate as her child won't talk with her. Navarro speaks with Ryan, Anne's brother, who is surprised to learn that Navarro. I have maybe some uh, non-podcast appropriate questions about Ryan. Which one's Ryan? The mine worker. The mine worker? The guy that comes out of the mines when his shift is over and he meets Navarro and then they go back to his place and talk about God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, that's not all they do. (laughs) No, no, no. That's a different guy. Okay. It is all they do. Uh, It is all they do. Uh, uh, Navarro speaks with Ryan. Navarro. Oh, the conversation with God. This is one thing I didn't really care for. This that conversation that God conversation felt forced. It felt like a an HBO executive saying you need to have like a Rust Cole dialogue in here somewhere. Right. And so she's like, all right, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was not great. Yeah. Uh. Oh. Navarro then goes to check on her sister, Julia, who claims someone was inside her apartment despite it being locked from the inside. Like their mother before them, Julia suffers from mental health issues, but Navarro tells her she is not like their mother and promises her she will not be hospitalized. Elsewhere, Rose Agnew is disturbed by a presence of a barefoot man outside her house whom she greets as Travis. So this woman, she's slicing open a wolf or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what it is. And then the wolf like shakes or something. Yeah, why am I finding the way you're saying wolf funny? I don't know, but that means the wolf has this disease and she also has the disease because she's hallucinating, right? Because Travis is obviously a hallucination. Despite not seeing a connection to the case, Danvers gets Peter to retrieve Anne's file from his father's home though he is unsuccessful in hiding this act from Hank. It is revealed that Navarro was the first to arrive at the scene where Anne was found dead from multiple stab wounds and her tongue severed with the weapon and culprit having never been found. She started harassing and assaulting many people from the local mine, believing that they were involved in her death until Hank removed her from the case. Danvers was appointed to the case, but she closed it, feeling that it could never be solved. Um. Oh, have you heard any woke talk about the show? <laughs> you you mentioned that. Um, the only thing that I saw was the director went social media and she's like, "Hey, the the toxic bros are trying to." That's always a bad look. You need to you need to be above that. I feel like. Yeah, I. You know, it's tough because, from my understanding. She's like has a real reputation making films in Mexico mm-hmm. um, and has been about it for a long time. Yeah. Then you get your break, which in this industry is hard enough, let alone if you are working outside of the country and all of a sudden, you know, HBO comes along and they're like, hey, you're seeing this as like, this is your shot, you know? And then to be met with, 
what you and I would see as like the expected mm-hmm. reaction. And then also for her being like, yeah, HBO is like, make this true detective. I don't know that she maybe was like a super true detective fan, you know? Um, so I think that she might not fully understand the ecosystem that she's being thrust into with this, with this show. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I took that a little more sympathetically, you know, on her part. I mean, yeah, I get it. It just is not, but, but I, I agree, but I, I, so number one, I totally agree, but I also have to wonder how clued in is she to, to being like, Oh, I just made a show. And then being like, wait, why, why is all this, mm-hmm. why am I getting a lot of pushback? You mm-hmm. know, it's like, oh, well, you don't understand the culture. Yeah. Well, I ask because this next part, after having sex with her lover, Eddie Quavik, Navarro sabotages the truck belonging to the man. Da, da, da. I've gone down a woke rabbit hole, okay? The subreddit is in another half the posts on the subreddit are complaining about how woke the show is. Half the posts are just complaining about people complaining about how woke the show is. Right. I watched, um, I just did a YouTube for night country. Uh And of course, one of the videos that comes up is a five minute true detective woke country review. And the guy legit, complains about this sex scene because she's has all the control and she's uh, on top and she determines how it all happens. <laughs> and it's like, my man, you're thinking about this too much. You know what I mean? Like give it up, buddy. It's not that big of a deal. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, again, that that's, that's the kind of content that you're like, you just need to say what you need to say Mm -hmm. and just find a way to not, you're going to look like an idiot. Find a way to not look like a super moron Mm -hmm. on top. Of course. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Danvers is unable to sleep as she is haunted by the voice of a child named Holden who calls her mommy. Both Navarro and Danvers hear the words. She is awake. Big, big catcher in the rye fan. You think? Hmm. With Navarro also seeming to encounter a polar bear with one eye eerily resembling a teddy bear Danvers has at home while driving through town. The bear looks better than the caribou. Yes. Uh, this prompts Danvers to continue her investigation, finding connection from the eight scientists to Anne. On the outskirts of Ennis, Rose follows Travis, who wordlessly guides her to a nearby area. Well, he dances. <laughs> he, he does it wordlessly though he wordlessly dances wordlessly dances he wordlessly twists and shouts uh the polar bear eye the teddy bear eye the drawing little kid's drawing eye and then all the wounds on the on ann are all star-shaped Someone else pointed out that the someone else found that the um, the she the the story that the grandmother is telling the kid mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is this mythological figure named Sedna, who is a female something 
looks like a mermaid type deal that had all of her fingers cut off. Ooh. So the drawing had all of its fingers cut off. Something to do with that. There's like a million different myths for this. I was looking for like one to yeah. say, oh, this is the thing. No, there's like 10. Oh, with, with myths, there's never one. Yeah. How would you feel if um, someone in your extended family was telling your girls <laughs> myths like that and then they were drawing? <laughs> the drawing part would probably be a little upsetting, but <laughs> I don't care about the story itself, I guess. Danvers returns to the research station encountering Navarro. Danvers reveals that she found a possible connection through a parka whom warned by Anne and that Raymond Clark, one of the scientists, apparently owned too. Their encounter turns hostile. Hostile? Hostile. Hostile. You can say either one. As both accuse each other of their failure in Anne's case, they are interrupted when Peter calls Danvers to inform her that Rose has found something in the ice. Arriving at the site via helicopter, the two greet Rose, who claims that Travis led her to the site, despite confirming to Navarro that he is dead. Authorities discover three men frozen in the ice with terrified looks on their faces. So I guess it's not all of this. It's three of the eight. So there's five left somewhere. Mm -hmm. All right. So what, what are the supernatural elements? The tongue? Well, the tongue, how, I don't, how is that supernatural? Someone just got their tongue ripped off. But it's an uh, indigenous tongue. Yeah, that's why I wanted. How do they know that? Just because it's they tattooed. were. tattooed. No, it wasn't tattooed. It had like scars on it. Scar. Oh, that's right. The scars. From licking nets or whatever. Anyone can lick a net. I don't know. It seemed like she jumped to the indigenous thing pretty quick on the tongue thing. So where where'd the tongue come from? Sure. I guess the assumption is that it's Anne's tongue somehow. Exactly. Right? So there's that. There's the person or the thing that was in the building. In the building. When the delivery guy was there. Mm-hmm. There's there's that. Travis. Travis. But again, I think we can work in the realm of hallucination. Mm-hmm. Um caribou. Caribou sniffing and reacting. So, I mean, there's enough. The polar bear? Was the polar bear real? Right. So there's enough there that I think the show could still have a supernatural explanation. I'm not ready to put that to bed. Mm -hmm. But my instinct is they've dug something up. They're also... Um, like biologists too. They're they're not just right. Um, looking at the chemistry, they're looking at life. Yeah. So, or at least there are some biologists on the team. So, you know that that makes it more towards like you're looking for organisms, you're looking for life in some way. I'm sure it will be ambiguous enough that it could be the prions disease. It could be Sedna, the mythological creature. Could be some supernatural thing, and you will get to pick your poison of what you think is correct. By the end, by, I think, by the end, I think they're going to answer it. Okie dokie. Okay, you're wrong. We'll see. Answer the question. 
He told me I had a small dong. <laughs> All right. Anything? What did you think of the episode? So, again, I feel like you telling me all the background makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. The The true detective name should not be applied to this. It's a perfectly good show mm-hmm. without the true detective name. You need it for the market. It's built in marketing. Why wouldn't you? Right. You know? Um, and I'm confident that there's a vision for this season. Now it's just in the execution, but based on the film that I've seen mm-hmm. half of at least i i'm enjoying it so i think that the ability is there i like jodie foster i don't mind the main character i'm still waiting for things to happen mm-hmm. i love the setting obviously um everything about that setting um i'm on board with the kid's dad i like him i forget his john name. hawks john hawks mm-hmm. always happy to see john hawks mm-hmm. um and so i'm ready i do this definitely felt like a introductory one and knowing that there's only six i realize why you have to dole it out but this would be one of the shows where i would i'd want to do like a premiere one two Mm -hmm. you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um but again if there's only six you just burn through right you know um a a third third yeah of your of your season so I get why you'd only do one, but definitely felt like I I want the second episode to get a better picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing about it really grabbed me. I thought it was, I thought it was fine. I, I'm interested to see where it goes. Yeah, but you know, it didn't grab me like the first season did. But I don't know if there will. Not going to be a whole lot of TV shows that do that. Yeah. So and again, maybe not a fair marker. I, I feel like, to me, I look back on season one, it's McConaughey as Restcole. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, that is a special, like, alignment of star and material. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen very often. And uh, this doesn't have that. Like, he made that feel dynamic. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Without McConaughey in that role, I think you walk away being like, probably feeling the same way. Oh, yeah, it, was, it was good. Right. Yeah. All right. All right. Bye bye. So go home. Bye bye. Love you. Bye bye. Bye bye. I love being your tile coach. <laughs> <laughs>